0: I'm going to start off in prayer for us today, so let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are good to us beyond anything we deserve. God, I pray that as you've given me the opportunity to present your glorious word today, that you would change hearts through what you have given me to say. Lord, I pray that you would get me out of the way so that you and your light may shine. We love you, Lord Jesus. We praise you for who you are. In your great name, amen. Uh, It's just kind of an off-the-cuff note from that last song. How emboldening is it to have such deep love from our Heavenly Father? Just listening to that brought me so much strength. So, worship team, thank you for that. So, for those of you who uh, don't know me, my name is Daniel Kaczynski. About eight years ago, uh, while I was attending a, a small school, middle of nowhere, Wisconsin, called Nicolay Bible Institute, uh, a school held at Silver Birch Ranch, I met Carissa Keller. And that's kind of where my connection with this place begins, because uh, she grew up at this church. And then about six years ago now, Chris and I got married. And as a result, I've had the pleasure of attending River Hills a number of times throughout the years. In fact, we even got married in this sanctuary. So one of the first times I stood up here actually was watching her come down, which was a little bit more nerve-wracking than this, I'll tell you what. (laughs) About a year ago, uh, we moved back to Janesville. And it was right after I finished my Master's Divinity through Trinity International University. And then this past January, we started attending River Hills regularly. Around that time, uh, I approached Pastor Steve and I offered to preach and did not think that that much was going to become of that. But in an incredible showing of faith, he and the elders have allowed me to come up here and give me the honor to present God's word to you. So I thank you for that. And then I also want to thank you guys at large because I have never felt unwelcome here. In fact, (laughs) sorry, I'm getting emotional about this, because I already feel like I'm bringing God's word to my brothers and sisters, and not just a group of strangers. So thank you for that. Now, I could keep thanking you guys because of the innumerable blessings you've already given us, but I did prepare a sermon, so I'd like to begin that. So, To begin, I need to express something about our passage. I was reading through uh, Colossians 2, 6 through 15, and I was thinking to myself, how many books could be written on this passage? Uh, And in fact, the passage can be split up in one of two ways. It can either be split up into two large sections, each with a command, or it could be split up into about 13 small little points. Uh, So I hope you guys brought lunch. Seriously, though, uh, this passage does nicely divide itself into two, albeit very uneven, halves. But each half is commanded by a command, an imperative. The first command that we're going to talk about today in verses 6 through 7 is the command to walk. And then the second command is going to be the command to be attentive or vigilant. And as a result... Uh, The question I want to ask about today's passage is how do we remain attentive in our Christian walk? And the answer that I want to propose to you from the passage is that we remain attentive in our walk by abiding in Christ's life-giving works. Again, we remain attentive in our walk by abiding in Christ's life-giving works. As we enter our passage in Colossians 2, I first want to tell the story of my favorite church father, Polycarp. I bring this man up because he had an incredible, undying faithfulness to God. He is an amazing example of walking attentively in Christ all the way to the end. This man was an elderly Christian, uh, about 86 years old, and he was living during the time of the Roman Empire. And he was being hunted down for his profession of faith. When they caught him, he didn't fight, but let himself be taken away peacefully. While being questioned, interrogated, and eventually even tied to the stake to be burned, he was repeatedly asked and even begged to recant of his faith in Christ, which is not something they commonly did for Christians. But they didn't want to put an elderly man to death. And I can imagine the arguments that they gave him. Maybe something like, why go through the pain? Just live out your days in peace. Or perhaps scariest of all, why would you die for someone you've never seen? But he stood steadfast. He continued walking attentively. And every time they brought up these arguments to him, he simply stated, 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? I want to say that again because it's such a powerful sentence. 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? This man walked faithfully till the end, and he kept his guard amidst the worst kind of persecution from today's passage, we can glean the reason for his underlying or undying faithfulness, and we can learn how to emulate such incredible love for our King and Savior. So, one last thing as we, as we enter our passage. This section of 10 verses uses the phrase, in him and with him, a lot. Now, Paul uses that phrase throughout Colossians all the time, but it is nowhere denser than in these 10 verses. So as we go through and as we reread through our passage, I want you to look for that and ask yourself, why? What is Paul trying to get at when he brings in this phrase? In these first two verses, as we read through them, I want to propose that they are saying that we can walk attentively with Christ in established growth. Again, this section can be summed up as walking attentively with Christ in established growth. The first word in verse 6 is the word therefore. It's a very important word, and if you've been taught to piece apart Scripture, you've probably heard the phrase, if you see a therefore, you have to ask what it's there for. And in this section, Paul has been giving sweeping arguments and statements about his thankfulness for the Colossians and the deity of Christ. And then most recently, he's been talking about his own suffering uh, on behalf of Christ and how he wishes that they would stand firm and indeed rejoice in their standing firm. And then, therefore, Paul now begins commanding them to do just that. Stand firm in the faith. Next, we have this phrase, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. So, so walk in him. And the focal point of, of this section, like I said before, is, is the command, walk in him. So let's begin by talking about that. The command to walk lays the foundation for not just these couple verses, but even the next two sections in Colossians which are verses 8 through 15, and then 16 through 23 um, in chapter 2. The first section, obviously, we're going to talk about today, and then the second section we'll talk about next week. Um, then we get to this phrase, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord. So it's like Paul saying, walk in him. Okay, How do we walk in him? Two ways. The first way is, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. And this means... That we continue just as we started in Him. Once again, we continue just as we started in Him. While this statement is simple enough, the meaning is profound. We are not expected as Christians to find some secret, hidden thing that we need to do um, or some incredible feat to continue walking in Christ. Instead, we are told to keep walking like we started. Christian, the peace that this should bring you should be profound because it brings into sharp relief the wonderful truth that it is Christ that works in us so that we can continue walking in him. Just as he made the first move to bring you to himself, so also does he complete the work in you. To drive this home, I want to bring your attention to the reading from Galatians from this morning. Paul calls the Galatians foolish because they decided to take what was spiritual and make it fleshly. They wanted to continue by the flesh what only Christ could have started. This truth cuts into our pride as we seek to take the reins of our Christian walk from Christ. But it also gives us a peace that surpasses understanding as we learn to trust in Christ and his working in us instead of trying to muscle through spiritual issues. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have a part in it. We do seek to grow in Christ, but we do that through his working in us. Next, so we've considered what it means to walk as we received Christ Jesus the Lord, But what does that look like? So we started in one way, and a lot of us, when we started, we didn't really know what we were doing. So as we mature, how do we glean from our maturity, and how do we glean from Scripture and know how to walk? Well, I'm glad you asked, Uh, because the next verse addresses just that question. And it essentially states that we continue by grounded progression in him. Again, we continue by grounded progression in him. Verse 7 contains four words called participles, which is a kind of verbal noun. Uh, And these participles in this verse are what we call participles of means. Now, I know that there's a lot of weird words that I just brought up, but all it really means is that these four words uh, that are the the participles in verse 7 these words that are rooted, built up, established, and abounding—they are all answering the question "how," and they're answering the question most specifically: "How do we walk in Christ?" And as you're looking at these four words in in uh, verse seven, um, I'm just going to read it for us, and then we'll talk about it. it so, verse seven says, "Rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught." abounding in thanksgiving. So these words, rooted, built up, established, abounding. Uh, none of these are words that I really think of when I think of walking. Uh, I mean, rooted, that sounds like a tree. That makes me think of an ent from Lord of the Rings. Uh, or built up, established, abounding. These, these aren't walking terms. So what is it getting at? Well, they're getting at the fact that our walk with Christ is steady. It's strong. It's firm. And that happens because we are in Christ, we are established in the faith, and we abound in thanksgiving. So let's break these phrases apart. So the first two participles uh, tell us to be rooted and built up in him. The meaning here is clear. Only in Christ can we find the strength to continue walking in the way someone like Paul or Polycarp did. In him, we can grow firmly and with confidence. Being rooted carries with it the imagery of a tree and the connotation of being fruitful in Christ. And the built up brings to mind some kind of sturdy structure, perhaps like a brick wall or something like that. Thus, we ought to be fruitful but always out of our deep roots and sturdiness in Christ. Not only that, but as the next phrase shows us, we also must be grounded in the gospel. This being established in the faith carries the imagery of like the foundation of a building. Without a good foundation, a building would collapse and be rendered completely useless. Likewise, Christian, without the gospel in your life, your faith and your works are rendered completely useless. There is simply no point in trying to serve Christ without keeping his saving work the basis for all that we do. The gospel is what sets us apart as believers, and we would be proven fools if we try to get rid of it. Finally, the final phrase of abounding in thanksgiving brings to mind the image of an overflowing cup When I think of something that is abounding, I think of something that cannot contain what is inside for the vastness of it. For instance, if your hamper is overflowing with dirty laundry, you probably need to do some laundry. Or if your cup is abounding with liquid, it's overflowing and you probably need to clean up a mess. You simply cannot hide something that is abounding, which is the point. As Christians, we have more reason to be thankful Than anyone on the face of the planet. And this is what takes our rootedness and our built-up in Him and our establishment, and it goes public. Though these other aspects, this the rooted, the built-up, the established, these, these things may not always be plainly visible to those around us. But our thanksgiving is the thing that says, this is what you're missing. What I have will bring you joy, true joy that cannot be snuffed. No one wants what a grumbler has, but everyone wants what the joyous and thankful person has. So we have now considered walking attentively with Christ and established growth through these first two verses, and we saw that we continue as we started, and we saw that we continue by grounded progression in him. Now we're going to move on to verses 8 through 15. Here's where Paul introduces his call for us to be attentive. The phrase at the beginning of verse 8 that says, see to it, is actually one Greek word that has the connotation of watch out, be attentive, be vigilant. And these next eight verses can thus be summed up as walking attentively with Christ in life-giving victory. Again, walking attentively with Christ in life-giving victory. These verses really answer the question, what is our defense against worldly wisdom? Let's look at verse 8 together. Verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by empty philosophy and empty deceit. Philosophy and empty deceit. I want to stop there for just a moment. Um, firstly, I want to talk about this idea of takes you captive. This idea of ca- takes you captive has a kind of warfare idea. You think of being taken captive in war. Uh, you are somebody who um, has been removed from the fighting. Right? You are no longer useful to the fighting. You're kind of in a helpless situation. And that's what Paul wants to defend us against with this section. He doesn't want us to be taken captive and rendered useless in the world around us through all of its temptations. But secondly, this verse refers to a philosophy and empty deceit. This kind of philosophy is then qualified uh, by four things. So let's let's read the, the rest of the verse together. I'm going to start at the top. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The first way that this philosophy is described is empty and deceitful. Now, there are two ideas that kind of create one whole idea here. The empty is, it doesn't have substance to it. The philosophy of this world, the wisdom of this world does not have substance to it, but it is also deceitful, which means it's convincing. Right when Paul or when Polycarp was being tried and um, trying to be convinced of vercanting Christ, I'm sure he came. They came up with so many arguments for him that sounded great in their ears, but they were deceitful and they were empty. They had no substance. They could not satisfy him, and they were convincing. They were deceitful. And the second way that this philosophy is described is that it is according to human tradition. So it's been tried and tested and been proven useful to the sinful man. In fact, it probably held credence, this wisdom probably holds credence to a lot of sinful people because it has been tested and tried over years and through sin been proven useful. And then thirdly, the final way that this philosophy is described is that it is of the elemental spirits. Frankly, it's demonic. And we know that demons can be very convincing as well. If this philosophy sounds overwhelming and hard to recognize, don't worry, because the best and most straightforward descriptor is next. It is not according to Christ. This is the simplest and most basic thing to take from this verse. The worldly wisdom that attacks us is not according to Christ and that's what I'm sure what Polycarp held on to, and that's what we need to hold on to. We are called to hold on to Christ, and when you do, you will be safe. Remember, when you're confronted with worldly wisdom, if it isn't Christ, it isn't good. Then we move on from verse 8, and Paul presents three incredible defenses to this worldly wisdom or philosophy. These are Christ's fullness, his resurrection, and his regenerative victory. Let's begin with verses 9 through 10 and how Christ's fullness protects us from worldly wisdom. Again, Christ's fullness protects us from worldly wisdom. These verses read, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Let's start with Christ's fullness and with his fullness of deity. The reason that Christ's fullness and that his fullness of deity um, dwelling in him is so vital for us is because it leaves nothing to be desired elsewhere. If worldly wisdom is trying to convince you, you need to look here for satisfaction, you need to look here for God. Well, we know that that's a lie, not because we have looked at it and we see that there's no God there, but because we know where all of God is. All of God is in Jesus. And it leaves nothing to be desired elsewhere. Worldly wisdom tells us that they have the satisfaction and the answers and everything we need for that satisfaction. But if the fullness or completeness of deity dwells in Christ... We know that they're lying. We know that they can't have that. That worldly wisdom lies to us when it tells us that it can provide a good that Christ cannot offer. Christ is the highest good, and he alone can give us what we need. And if that wasn't enough, Christ's fullness abounds to us as well. Verse uh, 10 starts to infer that we receive his fullness And completeness from him. Then, Paul even includes the fact that we receive our fullness from the one who is the head of all rule and authority. Christ has all the power, and he has given us a fullness from a position over all life's other goods and powers. Truly, when one who is all powerful seeks to satisfy those he loves, he does a great job. Now, while Christ's fullness protects us from worldly wisdom, so also Christ's resurrection protects us from worldly wisdom, as we will see in verses 11 and 12. Once again, Christ's resurrection protects us from worldly wisdom. Now, remember, way up at the top of the sermon, when I said that uh, this passage is dense. Uh, Yeah, this these two verses you could probably write a book on, just these. Crazy dense. Um, But I will do my best to um, do them justice. So firstly, verse 11 states that in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. We must ask, what is the point of circumcision? Based on the passage that was read earlier, Deuteronomy 10, the point of circumcision has always been to point to the circumcision of the heart. Now, we can look back at the story of Abraham and how God first brought circumcision to him, and that was to set apart God's people unto himself, but at the very least from Moses, we know that God has always wanted circumcision to, never, to not stop at the flesh, but for it to indicate a spiritual working in the heart. This circumcision of the heart changes our stubborn, prideful hearts and bends them to God's will. The next line then adds that this circumcision puts off the body of flesh. Throughout the New Testament, the flesh is an image of the sinful being within our old selves that the Christian ought to seek to destroy. Thus, this removal of the body of flesh insinuates at least the removal of the total power of sin from us. We no longer have no choice in our sin. We have had our hearts changed by the Spirit and he gives us freedom to serve Christ instead of our own flesh and sin. Finally, we are circumcised by the circumcision of Christ. This refers to Christ's death on the cross. The circumcision of Christ seems to tie circumcision with baptism and is thus incomplete without the next verse. Next verse says, "Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead." Thus, when Christ died, our sinful flesh was circumcised from us in some way. We were our 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 sinful flesh, the power of sin over us, was removed from us in some way. Then. Because we were circumcised with him in a circumcision like his, or in the death like his, then we were buried with him through baptism, buried with him through baptism. And then because we were buried with him, we were also raised with him through the power of God. Thus, in light of worldly wisdom, it protects us from worldly wisdom because we are dead to that worldly wisdom. We are dead to the flesh. The flesh has no hold on us. And when we are confronted with the deceitful, convincing arguments that the worldly wisdom has to offer, we can say, I'm dead to that. I'm Christ instead. Finally, we reach the last section, which makes the claim that Christ's regenerative victory protects us from worldly wisdom. One more time. Christ's regenerative victory protects us from worldly wisdom. Verse 13 begins with, frankly, a staggering claim. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. What? Seriously? I was dead? And God made me alive? Based on this verse, we were completely, utterly helpless, even as helpless as a corpse, which clearly can do nothing for itself. But God, but God made us alive. He brought us to life by raising us along with Christ. And he gives us this life in four ways based on this section. First, let's begin by reading verse 13 together. just want to read the whole thing, and then we'll start moving. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Then we get our first reason. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. This is the first way that God gives us life. He has forgiven us all our trespasses. But wait a minute. How can God forgive a sinful person? Paul here is telling us the gospel, and it is quite a unique telling of it. God can forgive the sinner because of what was just talked about. When we were circumcised by the circumcision of Christ, we died to our sin with Christ. And Christ, having lived a perfect life, was able to pay for our sins. But wait. Even someone who has been pardoned from a crime has a record that shows every court proceeding that has ever been called against them. And shouldn't that condemn them? Well, verse 13 gives us the answer to this issue. It says, starting at the end of verse 13, he has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Now, the word here, canceled, can also be translated Obliterated, which I really like that word for this section. Uh, Christian, the record of debt, the memory of all the evil, wicked things we've ever done has been completely obliterated and paid for by Christ. This is the second way in which God gives us life. Your sinful debt is gone, destroyed and canceled completely. There is no word that can be said against you that holds any weight, For Jesus has destroyed all your sin. But how can this be? How can an omniscient, all-knowing God be willing to forget all this sin? Well, we finish verse 14. It says this, the record of debt, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is the third way that God gives us life. When you nail something to a cross, it dies. Only Jesus came back from that and he left all our sin in the grave when he rose again. Your record of debt and memory of sin is gone, and because it was paid for completely, no one can or will ever bring it back. Now, I remember way back in verse 8 when I said that we would see warfare again in this passage. Well, now we finally see it again plainly. Verse 15 states... He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the final way that God gives us life. He puts the rulers and the authorities to open shame. He does this by disarming them, publicly humiliating them, and triumphing over them. We could spend time on each of these ideas, uh, but the message is clear. All the power of this worldly wisdom that so threatens us is destroyed and triumphed over, which secures our new life in Christ. And it's more than just triumphed over. They are humiliated. They are put to complete shame. They have no power left or strength to do anything against us. So, to the Christian, remember that your hope lies in Christ's payment for your sins and his victory over every other power. And to those who are still wondering about this whole Christian thing, I urge you to receive the fullness, life, and victory that you have in Christ. He takes away your shame and gives you victorious life in return. What better exchange is there than that? Throughout this passage, we have seen that we walk attentively with Christ in established growth, and we do this by continuing as we started and by continuing in grounded progression in him. Then we moved on to verses 8 through 15 and we saw that we walk attentively with Christ in life-giving victory and we do this by being protected from worldly wisdom by Christ's fullness, which satisfies you, his resurrection, which gives you the life you need to deny the world's wisdom, and regenerative victory, which takes away any power the world has against you. So, Christian, continue your walk by the Spirit, progressing in Christ, founded in the gospel, and being a light through thanksgiving. And remember that Christ satisfies, gives life, and is the victor over every other power, completely nullifying any deceitful wisdom that this world has to offer. Now as we begin communion, well, I'll pray for us, and then we will begin communion, and I'll invite Pastor Steve up. Lord, thank you for this time that we had together. We thank you so dearly for the victory that we have through you and the life that you have given us. We pray that we would not squander that, but instead live boldly our life um, that is new in you. We pray that we would abound in thanksgiving today and be attentive as we battle the horrible deceitfulness that is worldly wisdom. Give us the strength today to walk in you, and we love you, Lord Jesus. In your great name, amen.